Well, good morning and Merry Almost Christmas, like we've already acknowledged. We're just a week away from celebrating Christmas Eve services together, and I'm really excited to be able to do that with you. And, you know, I'm curious this morning, what is it that you're hoping you'll get for Christmas? Like, for some of us, that's a really easy question to answer. We've, we've got a list. For others, we're what we call hard to buy for. Uh, apparently, I fall into that category, but... Maybe it would have been easier if the kids were still in the room right now because we know they always have high hopes on their Christmas list, right? I remember when I was a kid, I asked for the same thing every year, a quad. It was like, <laughs> I've been on one before, I've got to drive one before, I love them, how cool would it be to have my own? So on the Christmas list it went. But it was on the Christmas list every year because the year before I would never get one. And as I would get older, my parents would like rationalize with me. It's like, it's not really the most practical Christmas present. They're kind of expensive. We don't have a truck. We're like, we have to get a truck or a trailer. We need somewhere to store it. And I kind of just eventually came to realize it probably wasn't ever going to happen. And one year, I just stopped putting it on my Christmas list because I had lost hope I was ever getting a quad for Christmas. Now, what is wrong with this story? You're right, there's no happy ending because I still don't have a quad. <laughs> but Christmas is just one week away. And uh, I think my parents got the hint this morning. They're sitting right there, kind of right where Charlie and Amy are. So, I mean, I would take it from you as well if, if you so felt. No, that's, that's not what's wrong with this story. What was wrong is my misplaced hope. Because I had no reason to hope and expect that quad to begin with, other than just my own desire that I wanted it. My, my hope was really just wishful thinking. And I think often we use these phrases, wishing and hoping, uh, synonymously, when really they are quite distinct. Hope, genuine hope, is the confidence of what is to come. And this Christmas season is filled with wishful thinking. And it, it can be really fun and really great, and a lot of it is what contributes to that eagerness, that excitement, that anticipation within our families that we love as we lead up to the Christmas season. And as we enjoy that in this season, I believe Jesus wants to give us the gift of genuine hope even more. This morning we get to explore how Jesus brings hope leading up to that first Christmas, a confidence of what is to come. So would you pray with me, and then we'll open the Bible together. Jesus, we invite you to be at work this morning. Uh, Jesus, would it be your words and your truth that comes through this morning? We submit to you. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to continue to grow in our understanding of all that you want to give us. In your name we pray. Amen. So to dig into the hope of that first Christmas, we're going to go back and look at a story of Zechariah. Now you're probably thinking, oh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, they both had, you know, these miraculous pregnancies. Good story, not the story I'm talking about though right now. We're going to get to that story in a while. But first, let's go back to the Old Testament. Zechariah of the Old Testament, different Zechariah, about a 500-year age gap between these two. Zechariah of the Old Testament was a prophet. He was a priest. He served around the year 520 B.C., and this time frame is significant for us because it's roughly 20 years after the Israelites returned from exile from Babylon. 
Now, when the Israelites returned from exile, they realized most of what they previously had was destroyed, including things like their temple, the holy city of Jerusalem, and most of what they had was left in ruins and destruction. And though it was exciting at first for the Israelites to be uh, free from the foreign and impressive land of Babylon, coming back, returning underneath the promises of God, it really wasn't that long until they started feeling otherwise. They came back to nothing. And, and now they had other difficulties in the midst of being a free, independent people, things like they're being taxed again, and it's really hard to rebuild when you have to give most of what you have away. We kind of compare it to maybe, like we go on vacation for Christmas, great vacation, but yet there's always that sense of, oh, it's nice to be home, right? But what if when you come home, you open the door, and like, oh, I forgot we left the house by a bit of a disaster. Uh, the sink was left on. Oh, and there's that property tax bill sitting on the counter. And it quickly turns from the, ah, we're home, to, ah, home. And I, except for, for the Israelites, it wasn't a vacation. It was 70 years of exile. It's easy for the people of Israel to feel small and that God was absent from them. With this, after that initial burst of, let's go back, let's rebuild, many of the people were feeling that the lifestyle of faithful obedience to God was useless. And really, maybe our best approach was to let's just make the, the best possible life we can out of our dismal circumstances apart from God. Why is this? Why only 20 years after God freed them from their oppression, they're turning away again? It's because they looked around them and said, there is no hope. So let's take matters into our own hands. We, we have a hope that something will look a certain way. And when it doesn't come, we start losing hope. I expected, I hoped that I would get a plot for Christmas and never did. I lost hope in that. The Israelites expected, they had their hope that when we come back to their land, that life would be easy. And life out of exile was still really difficult. Their expectations were different and led to losing their hope. So this is where Zachariah's message is. Uh, comes into play in this scene to remind the people that even though God may not be seen, He is still present. He is still going to act according to His timing. And He encourages them that if you turn to the Lord now, you'll discover that the Lord is also turning to you, and you will see the full restoration of Jerusalem. Zechariah verse 3, verse 8, uh, speaks a prophecy uh, saying that if we finish building this temple, let the the rebuilding of this temple is going to stand as a sign of the commitment of the Lord to his people. It will stand as a sign of a commitment. And the priests that serve in the temple are going to stand as a sign of my servant, the servant of God that is going to come, and that servant who in a single day will wipe away the sins of the entire land. Zechariah 3.8. Zechariah is setting the stage of the coming king. Signs that will reignite the hope of the nation and will direct them, redirect them, to turn their eyes back to the Lord. And Zechariah continues to prophesy about this coming king, some passages that we're familiar with. Zechariah chapter 9, we read, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. Because of my covenant with you, 
I will set your prisoners free from that waterless pit. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I'll restore twice as much to you. The people of Israel were once prisoners of Babylon, held captive to a foreign nation. God set them free and is telling them now, you are prisoners of hope. You are bound to this covenant promise. It is sure and a certain guarantee. It will come to fast, hold fast, because there is hope. What you have and what you see now is not all there is. And for the following chapters, Zechariah continues to prophesy about this coming king, and he's not the only one that's speaking these prophecies around this time. We see in Isaiah, prophecies of the the Savior that will be born. We see in Malachi as well. The Old Testament concludes with these prophecies of the one that is going to come that will be the Savior of all people. The affirmation to place their hope in God the call to be prisoners of hope, held captive to it, defined by it, dictated by the hope of what is to come. So then what happens next? Nothing. Like, well, not exactly nothing. The Israelites do rebuild the temple. They rebuild their cities. They continue to live their lives. They continue to live their difficult lives. But nothing as in no updates from God. No, uh, no word on how the fulfillment of these promises were going, no updates on when to expect a Savior. So our question stands, at what point do we let go of hope? How long have you had to wait for something before? How, how long has it taken for you to let go of your hope? Now, after the exile, we see the Israelites, it took about 20 years to let go of their hope. How about now? Their hope was reignited through these prophecies. Another 20 years go by. 50 years go by. How would your hope be doing now? 100 years go by. This is now far beyond what your own lifetime would be. Has your hope been passed down to the next generation? 200 years. 400 years go by without an update from God. How would you expect your hope to be doing? Are you still confident of what's going to come? Now, hope, specifically hope that's used in the Old Testament, is used in two distinct ways. Now, hope always speaks of the confidence of things to come, but kind of has two main characteristics. The first is this, and you're going to love for it, wait for it, be patient. Oh, yeah, no, that was actually it. To hope is to wait for and be patient. Oh, (laughs) if patience equates hope, I don't know if I'm very good at that. Maybe, maybe, I don't know if if our husbands and wives are very good at that. What about the children? Man, has anyone ever had a patient toddler before? My my oldest son uh, is going to turn five this week, and I will just candidly say he's the least patient of our children. Snack time, dinner time, anything like he just can't wait for anything. But it struck me this week as we're getting ready for his birthday, we had a party yesterday, and each year he gets to choose what cake he wants. And my wife will make him that cake, and he's been planning for an entire year a rocket ship cake. And what struck me is he waited 
an entire year. For the, our least patient child was planning and expecting this to come, but he never once asked, can I have it today? Is it going to come now? Because he was confident that it was going to come on his birthday. He's confident because he knew that's what happened on his last birthday and the birthday before. If, if we know that what we're waiting for is going to be worth the wait, we can have hope. We can be patient. Okay, so we, so we wait 400 years to receive the promised Savior. Fair enough, you know, good things come to those who wait. Might be worth it when life is smooth, when the wait is easy, and there's nothing to convince me otherwise that maybe my hope is false or misplaced. Okay, so let's jump into about 350-year mark of our 400-year wait. And we'll see that the Israelites weren't exactly a thriving community. They, they weren't slaves. They were still a free people, but they were small. They were struggling. They were always being ridiculously taxed for whatever reason. And now they're having a lot of internal conflicts. The, the leaders amongst themselves are butting heads. So they conclude, maybe we should get some outside help to bring some order and governance back into us. So they turn to the Romans, the powerhouse of the time. And in the year 63 BC, a man, a title of General Pompey, comes into Jerusalem to help restore order for the Israelites. In one of his early actions, he, on his own initiative, entered the temple. But not only the temple, he went into the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the, the areas where this presence of God itself itself dwelled, where only once a year the Most High Priest would enter on behalf of the people, a, a place so sacred in particular that if that priest entered wrongly, he would die on the spot. Yet this general walks in, says, what's the big deal? Walks out unscathed. To the ultimate insult and sacrilege of the Jews. So tell me now, how would your hope be doing? Is it waning yet? You've been waiting and waiting and, and waiting sucks, but now this. I just can't even make sense of it anymore. So let me introduce you the second characteristic of hope. Tension and expectation while you wait for something. It's literally speaking of a tight cord, pulling tight until there's a release, the tension. Uh, the Bible often speaks to it as a farmer planting crops. He doesn't just wait. He waits with expectation of a harvest. While you are waiting, you recognize that things are currently not yet how they are supposed to be, but you wait with expectation, believing that they will. Hope is the confidence of what is to come. It's defined by patiently waiting. And it's defined by the recognition of tension and expectation while we wait. Imagine your life as, as one of those priests during this time. What would that be like? Waiting for generations for the promise of God. As you're waiting, hope is being mastered. But then this general comes in and upsets the order of everything you knew by defying the temple. And, and that tension of hope is just being ratcheted tighter and tighter. This is not the way things are supposed to be. But remember the prophecies of Zechariah from 400 years ago. 
The temple would be what? The temple would be a sign of the commitment of God to the people. The priest serving would be a sign of the Savior to come. But now the temple has been disgraced. This greatly challenges our idea of hope, doesn't it? It confronts what we naturally think, uh, and we naturally think that these things are at odds. My hope says the Savior is going to come through this temple. My reality shows that the temple can be disgraced without consequences. Therefore, it's natural for us to conclude that, oh, my hope must be false. But genuine hope won't conclude that. It looks at our current reality. It says, this is not the way things are supposed to be. It has not been corrected yet, but I am confident that it will. Hope doesn't die in the midst of opposition. It can thrive because it can accurately identify what is currently wrong and yet what is yet to come. Hope looks beyond our current circumstances. So it is now I want to introduce to you a character named Zechariah in our Christmas story, Luke chapter 1, verse 6. Zechariah was also a priest, meaning his dad or, or possibly his grandpa would have also been a priest serving in the temple of time that is disgraced by General Pompey. So Zechariah comes into the story with, with this weight of tension, of hope, of waiting for the 400 years, the constant tightening, expecting things to change. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 6 introduces him this way. Or sorry, Luke chapter 1 verse 6 introduces Zechariah this way. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. So what do we see here? Not only are the circumstances of the nation of Israel poor, their personal circumstances were poor. Yet, they didn't just put on a religious hat saying, this is all I know, I'll just keep going through these motions, but it says they were careful to obey all the laws and regulations that the Lord had commanded, meaning they believed. They still believed. It means that hope remained. Not just wishful thinking, that, but, but hope in a way that directed their daily lives. Even though their circumstances would have pushed them to the edges, they chose to lean into the promises of God. More is on the way. It is worth the wait. They held themselves to be prisoners of hope. The prophecy of Zechariah, the temple is a sign of the commitment of God to the people. The priests serve as a sign of the coming Savior. He says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. You were once prisoners in Babylon. Now you are bound by my covenant promises. This hope that Zechariah carried directed his daily life and his actions. Let's keep reading uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 8. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Meaning, this probably wasn't a regular practice for Zechariah to go into the temple. He wasn't uh, a special priest. He was a regular priest. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. So not only do we have just a picture of one couple that held fast to the hope, 
but there was a great crowd outside praying, meaning hope was alive and well. The people of Israel were struggling immensely, yes, but hope lived amongst their difficult circumstances. Hope was alive and well among God's people, and they haven't even got to Christmas yet. Verse 11, Well, Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Zechariah's hope was alive and well in a way where he continued to hold in the confidence of God and trusted that God would be at work. He didn't just go into that temple that day with, with, with a script of, well, this is what I'm supposed to say. Here's what our routines are. This is our practice. Zechariah went into the temple that day and he bore his heart before God. He had a hope for the nation, and he brought that prayer forward. He had a personal hope for his family, and he brought that prayer forward. You hear, God has heard your prayers. Now, I just want to be clear at this. I'm not saying that because Zechariah has achieved some type of status of hope, God answered his prayers because of that. No. Uh, what I am saying is that Zechariah is turning towards God with a genuine request is a sign that his hope is alive. His hope lived within his difficulties of his present circumstances, and yes, I am saying that God hears your prayers. Where, where did Zechariah's hope come from? His story reminds us of another one. It has familiar characteristics to it. The story of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, also barren, Yet God gives them the promise of a child and makes a covenant that, that Abraham will be a father of many nations and that all nations will be blessed through him. And I think it's stories like this that Zechariah turned back to look on. He looked back so that he could continue looking forward because God did fulfill that promise. Abraham and Sarah did have a son. There's more promises. Uh, God did lead the people out of Egypt. God did lead his people out of exile in Babylon. And the exact timing that he told them he was going to, he looked back so that he could continue looking forward to know that God has proven himself in the past. And we can be confident that God will continue to do so in the future. Zechariah held fast to the character of God as a prisoner of hope, bound to the sure promises of God. Well, the, the rest of Zechariah's story is probably one that we are familiar with. This conversation with the angel in the temple concludes with this phrase. The angel speaks, my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. The assurance, the confidence. And it does. Elizabeth conceives. This angel goes to visit Mary. And we read that passage this morning during our worship set. And says, you will have a son and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. This is the promised Savior. And then the angel speaks to Mary. What's more, Elizabeth has become pregnant. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Why? For the word of God will never fail. The word of God 
will never fail. And, and these stories unfold just as predicted, just as God said they would. Both Elizabeth and Mary give birth to uh, fulfill the prophecies of God. But this whole story, the people of God waiting 400 years for the promises to be fulfilled, for, for the Savior to come, it sounds really quite exceptional, doesn't it? Like what, so what was it that made them hold on to their hope? What kept that hope alive? Was it actually just some stories of their ancient ancestors that made them endure for so long? Surely this must be like an out of the ordinary, an exceptional case. You know, it's in the Bible because it's miraculous and that's, that's why they could do it. Our question stands, how is your hope doing? How long have you had to wait for something? Have you had to wait 400 years? How about 2,000 years? Because we as the church have also been given promises from God. And we have been waiting 2,000 years to see their fulfillment, the promises that Jesus is coming again to finalize the work of redemption, of redeeming the world and bringing all those who believe into eternity with him. But in the New Testament, we're also introduced to a third characteristic of hope. Jesus, our living hope. Because when Jesus left this earth, he didn't just leave us, but he said, he promised, I will be with you always till the very end of the age. So yes, we have been waiting 2,000 years, but they have not been 2,000 silent years because Jesus has been and continues to be actively at work. How is our hope doing? Church, our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. So what are we to do with this? We are also called to be prisoners of hope. This, this exhortation from Zechariah still stands true for us today. One who is bound to the confidence and the promises of God. He is with us always. He is coming again. One who, like Zechariah, allows hope to live in the midst of our present difficulties. In the midst of our circumstances, it, it brings our genuine heart before God, the one who hears our prayers. So allow me to quickly address, what if we are lacking hope? How do we start rebuilding such a confidence? Our hope is built on our faith. We, we can also look back to look forward. Look and see how God has been at work throughout history. Yes, in the Bible, this word is sure, these, these promises are certain, and we can be uh, confident in that. But look back in your own lives as well. For you carry a testimony of the work of God. Our God is unchanging in character. He is infinite in power, and who he was is who he is and who he forever will be. Our current trust in the person of Jesus feeds into this confidence of our hope. Our, our trust in Jesus is reignited by knowing and receiving the love Jesus has for us. Again, what Andrew spoke so well on last week, receiving the love of Jesus, a love so strong that he came down to be with us. He made a way for us to be with him.
And when you trust in Jesus, you are sure of the promises that he has for us. Why does hope matter? It drives us to the recognition that there is more. What we have now, know now, deal with now is not all that there is. There is more in this life. And there is much, much more in the life to come. This isn't wishful thinking. It's the confidence and the promises of God. Hope requires this. Hope requires patience to wait on those promises. Hope requires tension and anticipation, recognizing that things now are not the way that they're supposed to be. Hope requires celebration and its fulfillment. So we celebrate this Christmas season for the hope that has been fulfilled through the birth of our Savior. We are confident of that and our living hope that remains. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the source of our hope. So we turn to you, we fix our eyes to you. We trust you because your word has never failed. We see the ways in which you have worked, how you have fulfilled every promise that you have made, knowing that there are still more yet to be fulfilled. So Jesus, we hold fast to that. We are bound as a prisoner of hope, confident of what is to come. Jesus, would you give us endurance to patiently wait, recognizing that what we have now is not all there is, there is more. In your name we pray, amen.